0: This is Global Tennessee, news, analysis, and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the July 14th edition of Global Dialogue. The International Affairs Speakers Program of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I'm Patrick Ryan. Uh, this evening we welcome Thomas Lippman, journalist, author, scholar on foreign affairs, especially the Middle East and energy. Tom is also a great friend of the Tennessee World Affairs Council and alum of our Distinguished Visiting Speaker Program. Uh, and he came to Nashville, Tennessee, to talk with uh, our folks here on two occasions, and we were just reminiscing about that. the uh, The day he had his name put on the uh, the outdoor billboard at the uh, the holiday inn in cookville and uh, in search of uh, a good sushi place to uh, to find after a, a day's uh, journey of of uh, talking to people well welcome tom great to see you
1: happy to do this pat and hello everyone good evening
0: well we uh, had a great uh, couple of trips there i think you set the endurance record for visiting speakers at uh, our world affairs council we we pretty well uh, wore you uh, out coming around. And I think on one day, you did the Cookville Breakfast Rotary Club, uh, two high school classrooms in the morning, the noon Rotary Club, a high school in the afternoon, and then uh, our our global uh, town hall. And, and then we went in search of sushi in Cookville.
1: Well, you know, that's right. I always like to hear myself talk, but that was a test. <laughs>
0: And, and that was uh, bracketed with the uh, days here, up here in Nashville at, at Vanderbilt and uh, a couple of other stops. You, I think you did the Noon Rotary, the Downtown Club.
1: And, uh, and at Belmont, I think.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, uh, sharing your insights and expertise with, uh, with the Tennessee World Affairs Council and our, our folks here in uh, not just Nashville, but Cookville and, and all the stops that uh, you made along the way. Uh, Tom, before we get going here, I just want to uh, remind our audience that uh, in addition to this program tonight, we've got some other terrific uh, things coming up uh, down the road, and I invite everybody to take a look at our calendar at tnwac.org slash calendar. Uh, next week, Carl Dean will be talking with Commissioner Bob Rolf, Tennessee Economic and Community Development Commissioner. Uh, we have uh, our weekly 2 p.m. news review with uh, Dick Bowers, Uh, Breck Walker, and usually a special guest on uh, July 28th, uh, Admiral Bill Owens, the former Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, will be with us to talk about U.S.-China relations. A little further down the road, we have uh, Defense Secretary, former Defense Secretary William Perry, and Plowshares Fund Policy Director Tom Kalina coming to talk about uh, the nuclear arms race, and a friend of uh, Tom Lippmann's who uh, Tom connected to the Tennessee World Affairs Council, will be with us in September, uh, David Rundell to talk about his book, Saudi Arabia uh, at a crossroads. Uh, Tom, um, I I know you've got a book that you're gonna be talking about, but any, uh, any insights you can share with us about David Rundell?
1: David Rundell served more time in Saudi Arabia in the US foreign service than any other person in different capacities. Those of you who are familiar with how embassies work will know them all. He was DCM. He was head of the political section. He was the economics officer. Uh, he was everything except the admin officer at one time or another in different tours. And he's really made his home in the Gulf. Uh, when I saw him, he was living in Dubai. And um, we blurred each other's books.
0: Terrific. Well, we look forward to that. And I'll just remind uh, our audience, uh, if they have uh, a chance, to uh, look at our website, tnwac.org, please consider becoming a member or donating to the World Affairs Council. That's how we continue our operations. And I think if you look at our calendar and then you look at the quality of speakers like Tom Lipman tonight, you'll uh, be interested in becoming a member of what we're doing. And Tom, let's talk a little bit about uh, your background. You're, uh, you're the only guy I know uh, personally who's got a Wikipedia page.
1: Yes, and you know what? It's wrong. It says I was born in 1939. I'm not that old.
0: Okay. Well, we didn't we didn't put your age on there, but uh, it did talk about your background uh, with the Washington Post, uh, Middle East Bureau Chief, and uh, uh, you also held down the post there in 2003 as uh, the head of their uh, their Iraq War coverage. Uh, you you cut your teeth with the Post in Vietnam. Is that right?
1: Well, I got my start in overseas reporting. at, Like many American journalists, um, I, I was lucky we had a good war. This, it, I know it sounds terrible, but when you're looking to break into international reporting, wars consume people. They need more reporters over X amount of time than they would otherwise to go there and do that. And so I got my chance by going to Vietnam as a correspondent. It was very late in the war. Nobody cared much anymore, but it was an opportunity for me. I was Before that, I'd been covering mostly local affairs. And as with a whole new generation in Iraq, uh, that's the way I broke into international reporting. And if you don't mind my saying a word about that, when I finished up in Vietnam, my bosses thought I had done a pretty good deal, pretty good job. And my reward for that would be another international assignment, um, which, of course, I wanted. And I told them that I would go anywhere except South America because there was no news in South America. And the dart hit the board at the Middle East. I, I would have gone to Eastern Europe or Africa or Tokyo. Uh, they offered me the Middle East and I took it. And I've never been able to extricate myself.
0: <laughs> uh, well, I, I have a similar story in the Navy. I wound up in the uh... Uh, the Middle East. Uh, the, the Navy recruiter uh, gave me a choice of which coast I wanted to go to, and being from New York, I chose the East Coast. So they sent me to Bahrain. That's the Navy's idea of the East Coast. So I, I share your uh, your interest in the Middle East in, in that respect. Um, we uh, we also have some uh, some books here of yours to uh, to talk about, and uh, here is your current your most recent book, Crude Oil, Crude Money that I'm really looking forward to hear you talk about tonight. Uh, but uh, we, we also have uh, quite a list of uh, books that you have produced over the years. And even as far back as the Washington Post Desk Book on Style. Uh, I assume that was when you were still with,
1: with the Post. But then most of these were after you, you left the Post. Is that right? Well, that's correct. I mean, after 9-11, like a lot of other people, um, I had been work- I had retired from the Post and I was working for a company that was hemorrhaging clients, and I found myself in need of something constructive to do. And it occurred to me that because of 9-11, there was gonna be a whole lot of interest in the United States about Saudi Arabia, a country people thought about in terms of oil and veiled women. That's what they knew about it. Um, The first book written by an American who had lived there was called Kings and Camels which will give you a level of the depth uh, that (laughs) that brought to its study of the kingdom. And it was time for Americans to know more about Saudi Arabia. So I went to work on Inside the Mirage in which I recounted the entire story of this peculiar relationship and how it developed and has evolved over the years, going back to the time before oil when the only Americans who went to the Arabian Peninsula were missionaries from the Reformed Church Missionary Hospital in Bahrain, who would go across the channel to Saudi Arabia to provide medical care to a place that otherwise didn't have any, a story that most Americans don't know anything about to this day.
0: Well, we, uh, we're, we're glad that you uh, were looking for additional work to do. And, and that led to uh, quite a, a laundry list of uh, books on the Middle East. Uh, I especially uh, enjoyed uh, Arabian Night Colonel Bill Eddy uh, and his uh, his influential position in the uh, consolidation of the u s. Saudi relationship. and And you and I actually met at a book signing. You were signing the Mirage, and I was uh, writing newsletters about uh, Saudi Arabia. So I showed up. you signed my book at a World affairs Council event, and uh, I think we've been in touch ever since, so i I was the beneficiary of uh, of that as well. Uh, well tom we uh we need to jump into uh some some substance here uh, and and no longer reminisce too much but uh let's uh let's start talking about global energy and i've put together some charts that I hope will dovetail with uh, what you've got to say but uh, i've seen your presentation style, so uh, I know that we're in good hands with uh, your direction on uh, we're on the flow of things with uh, the global energy, and then we'll uh, uh, we'll take a break and uh, move into a conversation about uh, your
1: book, Crude
0: Oil, Crude Money.
1: All right. Well, what I would like to do, I, I never read from the script, but I will consult my notes here because there's a lot of ground to cover, and I do hope we'll have time for some Q&A because that's what makes these events uh, most interesting. I, I, mean, sure. I know what I'm going to say, but I don't know what kind of questions people are going to ask. Um, Look, for most of my life, and I'm getting up there in years now, um, access to oil has been a major driver of American foreign and economic policy Uh, all over the world. I'd say it was second only to the imperatives of the Cold War uh, in its function as a primary determinant of American foreign policy. Those days are over. The United States now is awash in oil, the world is awash in oil, and we have more natural gas than we know what to do with. In fact, the United States, again, exports crude oil, which we didn't do for four decades. The reasons are several, Um, plummeting demand, of course, and the economic slowdown, which will correct itself to some extent eventually, a price war between Russia and Saudi Arabia and other countries in OPEC that flooded the oil, flooded the market with oil and drove the price down. To our great benefit, by the way, we as Americans filling up our tanks benefit by about a dollar a gallon every day from this. Um, There are new sources, even in this market coming online in uh, Africa, Central Asia, and Central America. And of course, longer term, but growing is a, worldwide aversion to carbon fuels because of climate change and the quest for renewable energy. And this glut that we have now today exists despite reduced production from Iran because of sanctions, Libya because of civil war, and uh, Venezuela because of the implosion of the economy and the oil industry there. So you can only imagine what's going to happen when those situations resolve themselves and those countries again resume full production. And we're already feeling the impacts of that in this country. Um, I would refer you to the fourth paragraph of a front page story in yesterday's New York Times that says, oil and gas companies in the United States are hurtling toward bankruptcy at a pace not seen in years. And he gives the details. And why is that? I saw this in West Texas and Oklahoma back in the 1980s when oil prices cratered, and we're seeing it again now. The price of oil is not high enough to sustain the cost of production and distribution of fracked oil. In Saudi Arabia, oil production is cheap uh, because the oil is easy to get at and close to the surface but oil here in the United States is more expensive. At the current price, um, these companies can't make any money. And if you take a look at the latest energy energy results from the US Energy Information Administration and the uh, World Energy Association in Europe um, and the International Energy Association, the numbers are pretty stark. And these are just quotes from those reports. The Energy Information Administration expects monthly Brent spot prices, that's a marker crude price used throughout, widely in the world, will average $41 a barrel during the second half of 2020 and rise to an average of $50 a barrel in 2021. Um, that's up slightly from what they predicted last month, but not nearly enough to sustain the kind of new development that was going on in this country. Uh, Oil demand is expected to fall by 8.1 million barrels a day. That's the largest demand in in 2020, the largest one-year demand in history. Although, of course, it will recover slightly as the economy begins to struggle back out of the pandemic. Um, And so go back, think now, on an inflation-adjusted basis, we have the lowest oil prices really since the early days. The oil price now, they're, they're basically giving it away. Um, we go contrast this to what was going on in the heyday of OPEC between January 1st, 1970 and December 31st, 1980, the years that included the Arab oil embargo. It's often referred to, by the way, as an OPEC oil embargo, which it wasn't. Several big OPEC, OPEC didn't do it, and OPEC big big OPEC members such as Iran, Venezuela, and Nigeria did not participate. It was an Arab oil embargo provoked by American support for Israel in the 1973 war. If you go back to what happened then, um, in those 10 years, the selling price of Saudi crude rose almost 300% over one decade. The Saudis got spectacularly rich. They were drowning in a Niagara of cash, making money faster they could spend it. And we, all of a sudden, were going through an immense cycle of inflation and demand that could not be met. And in a way, the same things are happening in natural gas the um, EIA expects US dry natural gas production to average 89.2 billion cubic feet a day this year. That sounds like a lot, but it's 3 billion cubic feet a day less than it was last year, result of falling prices that have caused a uh, reduction in drilling activity. And as for the price, the marker price in the United States averaged $1.63 per million BTU or British thermal units in June, the lowest inflation adjusted price going back to at least 1989. And the EIA, the U.S. Energy Information Administration, expects falling production will put upward pressure on prices through the end of 2021, but they're not going to be what they were. So in short, The domestic and global energy situation is radically different from what it was really for more than half a century, beginning in the fall of 1948, just about the time Harry Truman was being elected to a full term as president in November of 1948, the United States for the first time became a net importer of crude oil, of petroleum. We produced plenty of petroleum but the line of production and the line of demand crossed in November of 1948. And for half a century after that, uh, the question of how we were gonna fill that gap, who was gonna supply it, how we could secure that oil, and at what price was a fundamental component of US policy all over the world. And just to give you an example of how urgent it was, A few months after that happened in January 1949, President Truman approved what became known as the Denial Plan, a plan developed by the CIA that basically said, if we can't have it, neither can anybody else. That is to say, it was designed to take the oil supplies of the Persian Gulf region, beginning with Saudi Arabia, and set it up. So that if for some reason, domestic coup, invasion, whatever, that oil was not available to us, it would not be available to the Soviet Union or its client states. And the CIA, with the cooperation of the Arabian American Oil Company, actually wired the oil facilities of Saudi Arabia so that they could be exploded by a guy pushing a plunger on his way out. And um, eventually that program collapsed because the oil companies didn't want, couldn't get the cooperation of the producing governments. But that will give you an idea of the extent to which oil was a driving factor. So, and that's the context in which to understand this peculiar deal between Aristotle of Onassis and the Saudis, that's the subject of my book. So Pat, if you want me to say more about the overall energy picture, I'll be glad to do that. Otherwise, I'll go on in the context of what happened in 54.
0: Well, let's let's uh, drill a little deeper, Tom, uh, pardon the, the pun, into uh, the, the energy picture there. And let's talk just uh, briefly about what's going on in the current environment with uh, COVID-19. I know that uh, January, February, as, as we started this, the uh, global inventories were already high and the prices had been uh, under pressure for quite some time. Uh, can, can you start, uh, start us off there or maybe uh, give us a little of that uh, prelude to uh, what's going on now? Uh, but uh, you know that, that all leads into the tension between Russia and, and Saudi Arabia and conflicts within OPEC, uh, Venezuela being
1: offline, those kinds of things. Well, remember that for most of the major producing countries, oil is their lifeline. The less oil they produce, the less money they have. And they have a dual interest in producing the maximum amount of oil at the highest price they can get. That has resulted in a competition among the producing countries led by Saudi Arabia and Russia. Russia is really a country heavily dependent on oil exports for its revenue. What else does Russia manufacture or produce that anybody wants other than weapons? I mean, you don't, you, don't, you don't buy poultry frozen in Russia and imported to the United States, right? Uh, or children's clothing. So, yeah, we think, we think of Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states as dependent on oil. So you had a time of, you have greater vehicle efficiency all around the world. And so you had plenty of oil. You had overflowing storage tanks in the oil industry, even at the beginning of this year. And then, with the onset of the global pandemic, look what happened. People stopped flying. The demand for jet fuel is probably about 15% of what it was on the 1st of February. People stopped driving. And so, the demand for gasoline dropped through the, through the floor. To the extent that commerce dried up, people stopped shopping. The demand for trucking cratered. All those industries were oil-consuming industries at a time when there already was plenty of oil. Heaven knows what would have happened if Venezuela and Iran and Libya had been producing at full capacity at that time as well. And we haven't come out of that yet. So we still have way more oil available um, than we need. And meanwhile, as you may have read the other day, the um, Trump administration continues to open new areas of the United States to uh, oil exploration leasing. The Brazilians are still developing new offshore resources. There's still more oil in the future. Right.
0: The, uh, the news today uh, talked about uh, Iran-China coming to an agreement and Iran promising discounted oil to, uh, to China. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the uh, US sanctions in the case of Iran and uh, uh, Russia? I know there's some sanctioned oil field equipment in, in Russia and, and Iran, there's the, uh, uh, the post-Iran uh, nuclear deal sanctions that are back in effect. But how, how do these uh, sanctions, especially in the case of Iran, affect the, uh, the global market, and, and China apparently will be sidestepping uh, some of those uh, restrictions.
1: Well, let me, let me start at the Chinese end of that. Keep in mind that the, the flip side of Russia's dependence on oil exports is China's dependence on oil imports. China is heavily dependent on imported crude to run that surging economy. China has been, for example, since 2009, China is the biggest single purchaser of crude oil from Saudi Arabia. So when this, and they purchased a lot of oil from Iran? So when the United Nations and the United States imposed, when, particularly the United States, imposed sanctions on Iran, new sanctions um, after we pulled out of the nuclear agreement, A lot of countries around the world, particularly in Europe, simply stopped buying Iranian oil. And so the Iranians are doing whatever they can to find markets for their oil in um, whatever countries are willing to distance themselves from the United States and do business with Iran. One example is the cargoes of Iranian oil that. That are seaborne on their way to Venezuela, excuse me, Iranian gasoline that are on their way to Venezuela, which has essentially lost the ability to refine its own oil to produce gasoline. What well, an irony. Yeah, exactly. Well, Venezuela is a rogue state, so you can see that they're not going to be deterred by US sanctions, right? Um, the Iranians need to find some way to raise revenue they can't get around the fact that oil is traded in dollars. And dollars are essentially a prohibited currency to them. The Chinese have enough dollars that they don't need to get it out of any bank except their own treasury. And so there's a certain synergy between Iranian need to sell and Chinese need to purchase. And t- talking a little bit about
0: the, uh, the issues with uh, the, the global supply and demand, everyone thinks, well, the United States now uh, makes uh, enough of its own energy. We don't need Persian Gulf oil. We can pull everything out of the, the Gulf. Uh, but uh, give us a, just the uh, primer on, uh, you know, it's, it, all the oil in the world goes into one big can and then it's uh, spread around here
1: and there. Well, it's sort of the first thing you learn when you start delving into the oil business that there's one global oil market, essentially, which is why um, a price change in Saudi Arabia or Venezuela or Indonesia affects the price of gasoline in uh, Europe. One of my favorite things to do in Italy is to take a look at what's going on at the gas stations. The, where you see gas stations all over Italy in which the brand name is the letter Q, the number eight, Q8, as in Kuwait, get it, right? It's one integrated market. The Kuwaitis, Kuwaitis own those stations. All right. um, and furthermore, our closest allies in the world, other than Canada, by which I mean Japan and Australia are dependent on the oil market for their own industrial and commercial processes. No man is an Island in this, in this oil market. And so, um, and there are, there are trading patterns of oil that go back and forth. Uh, The United States exports and imports oil at the same time as do other countries, because it's one world market, except for the rogues who try to get around it with limited degrees of success. And so on one level, yes, in terms of raw numbers, we are energy independent, you might say, at long last. But we're not energy independent in the sense that we are not isolated from the realities of the world oil market. So we've got to make sure that
0: our allies are uh, are taken care of. Absolutely. Now, now in, in terms of um, what's going on in, in the Gulf, uh, just talk briefly about the dimensions of the relationships there. There's uh, the GCC, and they're now fractured to some extent. The competition with Iran, how does that affect the uh, energy market? People always worried about the closing of the Strait of Hormuz.
1: Well, it, it, the Strait of Hormuz, it's funny. I was there um, a few years ago, and I stood there on the deck of the ship. I was on looking out, and it's a huge parking lot for empty tankers waiting for cargoes. Um, Yes, the Strait of Hormuz is a checkpoint, but uh, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, and by the way, Iran, have now built overland pipelines that would bypass the Strait of Hormuz, that narrow checkpoint between a little tip of Oman and the Iranian coast, which is, what is it, 26 miles wide, I think it is, and the channel is two miles wide. And a vast percentage of the world's oil goes through there every day on supertankers. Uh, it's very vulnerable. Even if the, the Iranians talk, have talked about blockading it, any blockade, of course, would be cleared in short order by the U.S. Navy. But it would cause vast disruption, disruption in the U.S. oil market. Uh, ship owners wouldn't send their ships there. Insurance rates would go through the roof. Oil would have to be diverted shipped elsewhere. Various countries, including Turkey, are trying to take advantage of this by building new overland pipelines through their own territory. Um, the Strait of Hormuz is, is a very vital uh, choke, potential choke point, but not the only one. And so you have a situation in the Gulf now is, that's much more complicated than it used to be. It used to be that you had all the sheikdoms on the Arab side of the Gulf lined up as cooperating members of OPEC, more or less dominated by Saudi Arabia, but not entirely controlled by Saudi Arabia. The Kuwaitis are very firm advocates of their own policies. And on the other side, you had non-Arab Iran. And before the Iranian Revolution, um, they were all pretty much aligned with the United States or Britain in one way or another. Now, you have different rivalries that have, to some um, extent—OPEC has overridden them because they all have a common interest in the oil export market, regardless of their political or strategic orientation. But the rivalry between Iran and Saudi Arabia has brought violence and threats of violence around the region. You have a civil war in Yemen that has threatened to disrupt shipping, not at the Strait of Hormuz, but on the other side of Yemen, at the entrance to the Red Sea, which goes up to the Suez Canal. And you have a split within the Arab states on the Gulf side, in which the United, in which the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and Bahrain are boycotting uh, the Sheikhdom of Qatar, formerly a cooperating member of the Gulf Cooperation Council, Qatar is one of the world's major exporters of natural gas. And guess what? It shares the world's biggest offshore oil field with Iran. So Qatar... You you can't make this stuff up. Yeah, exactly. So Qatar, despite whatever pressure the Saudis and the Emiratis want to put on it, is not in a position to cut off commerce with the Iranians. So... In, in terms of the local um, byplay and the potential for disruption the, uh, the market is the, the situation is much more complicated than it used to be but over all that you still have OPEC meetings those countries are all members of OPEC and they all continue to look for some formula that would accommodate their desires and the needs of Russia to keep the oil market stable at a price that keeps them in the, in the black.
0: Well, Tom, I'd love to hear you talk about the Gulf and we could probably talk all night about uh, Saudi Arabia and what's going on there. But I want to turn to your book. And before we do, I'll just remind uh, our audience here to uh, please take a look at TNWAC.org, the Tennessee World Affairs Council website, uh, and consider becoming a member or making a gift to the World Affairs Council. We're a nonpartisan, nonprofit uh, educational group. Uh, we do these uh, webinars with uh, distinguished figures like Mr. Lippman that we have with us this evening, and you get insights and perspectives that you just won't get anywhere else. So help us pay the, uh, the light bill and also support our educational outreach programs that we do with high schools and universities, and uh, we will appreciate that. Now, Tom, let's uh, get into your book, and uh, uh, I will uh, throw up a slide here and, and let people see what uh, the cover looks like, but go ahead and and uh, start us off with uh, crude
1: oil, uh, crude money. And uh... let me just briefly, uh, I I assume most of you know this, but a team of geologists and oil explorers from uh, Standard Oil of California or Chevron discovered oil in Saudi Arabia in 1933. Before that, all the major oil resources in the Gulf basically were controlled by British and other European interests. American. This was the American entree into the Gulf, the discovery in 1933. And Chevron, later joined by Texaco, Exxon, and Mobil to form the consortium known as Aramco, Chevron signed, I think it was a 60-year agreement with Saudi Arabia that gave the Americans exclusive control over the oil onshore and off in most of Saudi Arabia. In what was anywhere known to be the oil producing regions of Saudi Arabia. They had, Americans, the American company had the right to look for it, find it, produce it, process it, um, ship it, sell it. It was all American. And it forged a very close, necessarily very close working relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. By 1954, Saudi Arabia was. Finding its way as a country. It had been one of the poorest countries in the world, and it really didn't start major oil exports until after World War II. By 1954, money was coming into Saudi Arabia. The Saudis were beginning to have differences with the United States over certain issues. It had begun with Harry Truman's immediate recognition of Israel in 1948. But there were bilateral issues as well, including the reluctance of the United States to sell weapons to Saudi Arabia. In November of 1953, King Abdulaziz al-Saud, the founding king of Saudi Arabia, died. And he was one of the giants of Arab history. And with his death, the, 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 one, the worst decision he made in his long, fruitful life was his choice of a successor. Instead of the um, ascetic and disciplined Prince Faisal, he chose his oldest son, King Sa- Saud, who was a uh, dissolute and incompetent, unfortunately. And, but he had strong ideas And so Saud became king uh, in November of 1953, and he was looking for ways to jerk the American's chain, basically. And he found a beauty in an opportunity that surfaced out of the blue. And to make this long story short, In January of 1954, the Americans who had no idea that this was coming, didn't know anything about the negotiations that led up to this, discovered that the Saudis had signed a contract with a person some of you may remember, the so-called Greek shipping tycoon, Aristotle Onassis. And that contract would have given Onassis and his ships the exclusive right, exclusive control to ship all the oil out of Saudi Arabia um, in his ships at rates, at freight rates that he would set. And this, there were, the problems with this, this just set off every kind of bomb in Washington that you can imagine for several reasons. First of all, Onassis was under indictment in Washington at the time. <laughs> he had been indicted a few months before on charges of defrauding the US Navy in purchasing surplus ships after World War II. Second, the Americans were furious at him anyway because the CIA had developed information that he had used his ships to send oil and other products to. Uh, Russia and China during the Korean War. Products shipped by Onassis made possible the death of those Americans on the battlefields of Korea. In addition, it would, his price system would completely disrupt the world shipping markets where uh, oil shippers like everybody else sought bids for tanker freighters, right? Tanker carriers, tanker owners made bids. And if you didn't like this bid you'd go with the other bid there was plenty of oil in the world if you couldn't make a deal with country a you went to country b his his uh deal with the saudis inf- infuriated not just the americans but the norwegians the brits and every other maritime company country in the world furthermore uh now what would the saudis have gotten out of this Onassis, in addition to paying them uh, the fee that he was going to charge, he would have created at his expense a fleet of tankers that would have flown the Saudi flag and registered in Saudi Arabia, and he would train 50 Saudi mariners a year to operate those ships. In effect, he would create for the Saudis their own merchant fleet. And that seemed like that seemed a pretty appealing way to sort of liberate themselves from the complete control that the Americans had. Well, this deal really, however, what really turned the Americans into a determination to frustrate, to thwart it, was the sense of the Dulles brothers, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, and his brother Alan, who was the director of Central Intelligence at the time they believed as did the fbi none of whose business it was they believed and persuaded eisenhower that this onassis deal would open the door to all kinds of mischief in the gulf produce in the oil producing states of the region just two years earlier two and a half years earlier The Iranians had nationalized their oil industry under Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh. Mossadegh, we got rid of. (laughs) We put the Shah back on the throne in a coup that was, well, you can debate whether it was orchestrated by the CIA, but the CIA certainly was a willing participant in it and put the Shah back on the throne. But nevertheless, the nationalization of the Iranian industry stood that is no longer controlled by any Western oil company. The Dulles brothers did not want the nationalization bug to bite, certainly not in Saudi Arabia. And remember the atmosphere at the time. Stalin had died. Stalin had adopted a with us or against us policy about the developing world. His successors were much more flexible. They wanted to reach out to neutral countries of the developing world and help them in an attempt to win them over to the Soviet side of the of the strategic ledger. And this was at the time of the Bandung, the famous Bandung Conference, when Nasser, Nehru, and uh, Sukarno of Indonesia had created this so-called block of non-aligned nations. They were not aligned with the Soviet Union, but they were willing to do business with the Soviet Union. They were not aligned with the United States either. And they wanted to practice a kind of constructive neutrality. Um, That was anathema to Washington. Uh, We, the Americans, did not want the Saudis to drift into that orbit. We were shocked by Saudi participation in the Bandung Conference. And so the oil contract became a thing that was about a lot more than oil. It was about the Cold War. It was about the struggle for influence throughout the Middle East with the Soviet Union and its agents. It was about the rising influence of Nasser who did align himself with the Soviet Union as did other Arab countries. And so in July, with all these elements on the table, in July of 1954, Um, Eisenhower signed off on a directive to the United States security agencies and military to make sure that the Onassis oil deal never went into effect. Now, the United States couldn't just bully Saudi Arabia because they had what we wanted, i.e. oil. So the situation was very delicate for the oil companies and the United States. Nobody wanted to be in a position of standing up and opposing the deal and alienating King Saud. The oil companies were afraid he would revoke the franchise and give it to somebody else like BP. And Eisenhower and his team didn't want to anger King Saud and drive him into the arms of the Soviets, who certainly would have volunteered to be helpful had they had the opportunity. While these discussions were going on, for example, uh, Crown Prince Faisal received an invitation from the Red Chinese to go to Beijing and talk things over. Now, at the time, Saudi Arabia had no relations of any kind, commercial, diplomatic, strategic, with any communist country and didn't want any. But clearly, the communists were willing to make blandishments. And so the question was how to find a way to make sure this contract never went into effect without leaving any fingerprints. So I'm not going to tell you how they did it. That's what my book is about. Um, you got to go out and buy it for yourself. It's a great book. Buy multiple copies. Um, but that's what the book is about. And I might just say that the, when we finally got through that crisis with the Saudis, Many more ensued and continue to ensue over the years of dust-ups in relations between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Um, Some of them are well-known, such as, well, right up to 9-11 and Saudi Arabia, opposition to the invasion of Iraq. Some of them less well-known, like this Onassis oil episode. Somehow the relationship always endures because both sides need it.
0: Well, Tom, that was a, a terrific uh, preview, and I'm sure people are are uh, now dialing up on their uh, computers, Amazon.com, to uh, take a look at your book. Uh, I'm I'm certainly uh, looking forward to getting a copy of it. And I'll I'll mention uh, I, I don't know if uh, you saw this in the email that we will uh, present a copy of your book to a, uh, a one of the the names of our participants tonight who are. Uh, active currently dues paid up members of the World Affairs Council, and that's um, easy to do. If you uh, become a member in the next twenty four hours, you're eligible for the book prize. So, and if you want to stay one, up all night reading, <laughs> yeah. If if, uh, if Tom's uh, introduction has has uh, teased you enough, uh, you can either go out and buy the book directly or become a member of the World Affairs Council. And uh, if you look at the number of folks who are in the queue with you, uh, I don't know how many of them are active members of the World Affairs Council, there are a few, but uh, we will give the book away to a World Affairs Council member who's uh, in our audience tonight. Uh, Tom, let, let's just talk, and I, I should also hardly recommend Mirage, the first book of yours that I read. Uh, it's about the history of uh, Saudi Arabia from the beginning of the American relationship up until, um, I guess about the 2005 uh, era, the, the middle of the aughts um, when, when the book was uh, delivered. But they're really, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is, is kind of a mysterious place. As, as Tom mentioned, uh, probably the only uh, notable book before that was uh, Camels and Oil. Is that the title? Camels and Kings? Kings and Camels. Kings and Camels. So uh, if you really want to understand what's going on with Saudi Arabia and put into context the current relationship, uh, the Mirage is uh, is another terrific book, uh, Tom. Let me uh, just ask a question, and, and I'll remind folks to uh, put some questions in the uh, either the Q and A uh, tab on your Zoom screen or even in the chat box, uh, and we'll we'll pass those to Tom. Uh, but talk a little bit about that that foundational period. Um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt went to the Red Sea, the Great Bitter, Bitter Lake and met uh, King Abdul Aziz on the USS Quincy in 1945, after Yalta and just before FDR uh, passed. Uh, but that was kind of the uh, the linchpin of of the uh, relationship. But then those first 10 years, things were still settling out. We were settling into the Cold War. The Saudis were settling into their newly found uh, economic uh, strength and, and uh, you know, you described excellently in in Mirage what the kingdom was like: no roads between major cities. Uh, if you wanted to get somewhere, you drove out across the desert or got on one of the few airplanes that existed. Uh, so that that could have turned out a wholly different way. Uh, what uh, what sort of guided the uh, the direction of of those early years that er- that first decade in that relationship?
1: Well, what happened was that. Um as oil the first oil was exported in 1939 the first barrel of oil to be sent out of the country was in 1939 but right after that happened the war basically cut off oil exports there you couldn't get shipping shipping lanes were closed you couldn't get equipment so the americans left a skeleton crew behind known as the hundred men to maintain what they had built and left And so oil production didn't really return again until the war ended and Saudi Arabia there was starvation in the hinterlands in Saudi Arabia during the war because their only other source of income was a tax on pilgrims going to the annual hajj in Mecca and there were no pilgrims because of the war and so um, the Americans and the Brits provided aid to Saudi Arabia but it was a terrible time in the kingdom so oil resumed. A couple of things happened in 1945. One is oil exports resumed and began to ramp up. The Americans came back and rebuilt to go on building the Saudi oil industry. But remember that the Americans by that time had been there for, um, what, 12 years. And in the middle of the war, until 1943, there was no US diplomatic mission in Saudi Arabia of any kind. Uh, the ambassador in Egypt was accredited to Saudi Arabia and there was no consulate, there was no embassy. But in the middle of the war, the United States was fighting a two-front war in, the, in Asia and Europe. And it became clear that Saudi Arabia would have strategic value as an operational base. Just about the time Americans who knew about the oil business began to predict that the Saudi reservoirs would be crucial after the war. They basically predicted what happened in 48, that we would begin to need to import oil. In that context, uh, right on his way home from Yalta, um, President Roosevelt boarded a ship in the Great Bitter Lake in the Suez Canal and met with the Emperor of Ethiopia and the King of Egypt and the King of Saudi Arabia. The first two of those meetings were essentially courtesy calls. His meeting with the King of Saudi Arabia was uh, a serious, extensive discussion between two men, a patrician Roosevelt from Harvard, and a semi literate king who had dueling who had sword wounds on his body, right? Nevertheless, the two men hit it off. Roosevelt refrained from smoking in the King's presence, little gestures like that. And it's often thought that they created some kind of strategic oil for security bargain. That didn't happen. The United States already had guaranteed access to Saudi oil. Roosevelt didn't need to discuss it. Most of what they talked about was the future of Palestine, where Britain was about to give up the mandate that it had taken on after from the League of Nations after the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. Nevertheless, from that moment, the United States now had diplomatic representation in Saudi Arabia, the Aramco industry began to grow. It was clear that Saudi Arabia was going to be a country that was of, would be of increasing importance to U.S. interests. And Roosevelt, who died two months later, uh, left that legacy to Harry Truman, who certainly ran with it. And that's why he developed the uh, oil uh, the denial plan after his election to a full term.
0: Well, let's, uh, let's turn to a quick question from uh, a audience member here, and, and then I think we'll uh, be close to wrapping up. Um, Jim Shepard, who is the chairman of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Uh, Jim, thanks uh, for your question uh, for Tom. Uh, Jim writes, given the current situation where the world has an excess of oil and natural gas supply and the strong trend to move away from hydrocarbons to renewable energy sources, the future economies of the OPEC countries and other oil dependent economies are very tentative this has the potential for significant social unrest in these countries what are your thoughts on how us foreign policy should be crafted to protect the interest of the us and to the world as a whole so as as we uh, uh, as the world decouples from hydrocarbons to some extent uh, what what's going to be the impact on on the uh what's the word rentier states
1: well you know i worked on a project uh, that was based at george washington university a few years ago that basically asked the question of why do we need troops in every place out in that region from angelic to diego garcia Like right? what what are we defending out there and you it's a fair question it, it seems to me that it, Our policy is not, or should not be, to defend any particular regime. Our policy should be to make sure that we maintain stability, avoid a nuclear arms race at any cost, and try to make sure that the oil keeps uh, flowing and nobody attacks Israel. And as we were willing to demonstrate um, briefly after the Iranian Revolution we would have dealt with the revolutionary government. We still had an embassy in uh, Tehran and so we're not looking or shouldn't be looking to protect regime A in Sheikhdom A if there turns out to be, if it turns out the people want to do something else. In fact though there is certainly in Saudi Arabia there's very very little impetus for the kind of domestic political upheaval that would bring the downfall of the regime or civil war or anything else. The uh, the Saudis have good lives. Their country's peaceful, their country is secure. They don't have school shootings and fentanyl overdoses and they don't want them. Um, Pretty much everybody in Saudi Arabia benefits in one way or another from the status quo. Big businesses on board with the regime and the Saudis are perfectly well aware that the air, oil era is coming to an end, and like all the other countries out there, they're planning. For, they're trying to prepare for that, partly through the development of immense sovereign wealth funds, and partly through diversification of the economy, which they have not succeeded in doing. But they're better at than they were before. But there's
0: going to be some other countries that uh, are less prepared to deal with the the what so-called end of oil. Um, and I don't know that there are good uh, good solutions for
1: them. No, Iraq is a good example, right? Yep. If the Iraqis couldn't sustain themselves on cash from oil, could that country stay together? Right. No, Iraq is an artificial creation in the sense that Saudi Arabia is not. Iraq was created by a bunch of Europeans with pencils on a map. Yeah. And... Um, So who knows if that's sustainable? Iran is something else. Iran has a civilization that goes back almost as far as China. So I'm not worried about the Iranians.
0: Yeah. Another question uh, in the same vein from Bob Teague. And Bob is the president of the United Nations Association here in Nashville. And Tom, you may not know that it's uh, called the Cordell Hall chapter. Cordell Hall, the father of the United Nations being a Tennessean, it's the longest uh, chapter in the uh, the UN Association uh, fold. Uh, Bob, uh, he starts out his question. Uh, I'll uh, abbreviate a little bit, but he says oil is poison to the earth, to the climate, to humans, and all life. Uh, it goes on uh, in in that vein. But he he asks, uh, uh, as the oil industry drives the earth to ruin and its toxicity remains, what steps can the remaining people take uh, to save uh, lives and and limb on on earth? And and I won't uh, uh, presume that you're an industrial engineer or. An environmental um, uh, technician, but you've been around oil companies for a while. Maybe you could answer it in a way to describe what oil companies—how uh, are they preparing for the end of oil?
1: Well, I mean, the oil companies and oil companies, you know. I mean, the world's biggest oil company is, Ara- is Saudi Aramco, and Saudi Aramco, the Saudis they have, have no plan B, which is which state-owned, of course, right? Many. Uh, biggest oil companies are state-owned except in the United States. Um, In a country like Saudi Arabia, which has a huge domestic oil shortage, right? I mean, they're consuming more and more of their own oil to generate electricity. They have at least a nominal commitment to solar and to alternative energy. Uh, Other oil companies they have now um, invested in natural gas which is the immediate short-term alternative to oil um, but that's sort of like asking you know what the American buggy Whip company was going to do in 1905 you know I mean I'm um, at Zaki Yamani, the great witty Saudi oil minister of the OPEC days yeah just to quip that the uh, stone age didn't end because the world ran out of stone right the implication was that there'll still be oil in the ground when we stop using it what the saudis want is for that oil left in the ground to be other people's oil not theirs and so they don't want to drive the price up so people stop using it but what what the free free market oil companies, publicly traded, responsible to their shareholders, are going to do about this, I don't know. And what they should do, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well, Tom, uh, this has been uh, a, a great evening, uh, well spent, and uh, we appreciate uh, you coming uh, to us from suburban Washington, D.C. No, you're in the district.
1: I live in the city.
0: You live in the city. Um, well, hopefully, in inshallah, you'll have a... a a couple of senators one of these days. I know that's a a burning issue uh, in the district there.
1: Well, not not to me personally, but to a lot of my (laughs) citizens. it is. Look, if if you have people there who want to send me a question by email or something, I'm happy to do that. You can give them my contacts and I, you know, because I've got, like everybody else, I got time on my hands.
0: (laughs) Well, the book is Crude Oil, Crude Money, Aristotle, Onassis, Saudi Arabia and the CIA. And the author is Thomas Lipman, a, a great friend of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Tom, thanks so much for being with us tonight. And uh, that's it from the World Affairs Council. We appreciate you coming. We appreciate your membership and your financial support to keep the World Affairs Council up and running. Uh, take a look at our calendar on the website. You'll see some terrific programs coming up, and uh, we invite you back uh, for more. Tom, again, personally, uh, and on behalf of the World Risk Council, thanks for taking part of your evening, and we look forward to seeing you again next time.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Pat.
0: Bye-bye. Everyone be safe.